Hello everyone and welcome to PA Study Sesh. I'm your host McKenna Morgan and this week we'll be discussing disorders of the bowel, specifically disorders of obstruction. Alright everybody, welcome back. Today we are discussing disorders of the bowel. I remember last week I had mentioned I was discussing slash thinking about separating it between small and large bowel. I have changed my mind. I'm going to talk about the small and the large bowel at the same time. However, what I'm going to do is we're going to talk about disorders of obstruction today. And then next week we're going to discuss all the inflammatory and infection and a couple vascular disorders they threw in there as well. So that's how we're going to split up the bowel section for this podcast. It was a little long to do in one episode, and I figured you guys would appreciate two small episodes instead of one really big, heavy episode, and it allows me to focus our questions and takeaway points a little bit better for you guys. So before we begin, too, I'd also like to give a shout out to Liz. She's a nurse practitioner student. She sent me some podcast love, so I always love hearing your guys' feedback pastudysesh at gmail.com. So that was really nice to hear from her. All right. So without further ado, let's get on with our questions. What obstruction is associated with current jelly stools? And this is intussusception. What is the number one cause of small bowel obstruction? This is post-surgical adhesions. Describe the bowel sounds associated with a small bowel obstruction. These are hyperactive, high-pitched, tinkling sounds in early obstruction, hypoactive or absent in late obstruction. All right. So, as I had mentioned, we're going to just talk about all things obstruction today. So, we'll start with the small bowel. Etiology, as I had mentioned in our warm-up question, the number one cause of small bowel obstruction are post-surgical adhesions. I see these all the time. They kind of remind me of like little cobwebs stuck to the abdominal wall. Um, how I remember this, surgical small bowel, S and S, go together. Symptoms of a small bowel obstruction. Again, we can list so many GI symptoms and they're not going to be anything that screams any one particular disorder. Um, one thing though that you do want to consider obstruction is when a patient has obstipation. And this is an inability to pass flatus, also called an inability to pass gas, um, I want you to clue into obstruction. Obviously, if there's a blockage that's so tight that you can't pass a gas through it, because that's something concerning. Um, they'll also have progressively worsening abdominal pain and vomiting. That makes sense. If you have a blockage, your pressure is going to build up. It's got to go somewhere. It's going to go back. It's going to go create pressure and create pain. Logical. But again, I want you to focus on obstipation. If you read obstipation in a question stem, start thinking obstruction. Physical exam, their bowel will be distended. Makes sense. Something's stuck. It's going to build up gas and solids. 
They're going to have, again, those hyperactive, high-pitched, tinkling sounds in early obstruction. In late obstruction, it'll be hypoactive. They'll also have visible peristalsis in early obstruction. I think that's kind of important to know. That's kind of those big, bolded, high-pitched, tinkling sounds on auscultation and visible peristalsis. Think small bowel obstruction. Diagnosis of this is using an abdominal x-ray. And they'll have air fluid levels in a stepladder pattern. Highly encourage you to Google that. It'll make total sense once you see it. And of course, they're distended. They'll have dilated bowel loops. Treatment, again, is kind of a conservative versus surgical. If they have strangulated tissue. Obviously, we don't want tissue to die. It's a surgical decompression. But if it's not strangulated, they're going to be NPO, IV fluids, you know, keep them hydrated, and then bowel decompression via an NG tube, nasogastric tube suction. Again, I don't think you're going to need to really uh, differentiate whether their bowel is strangulated in a question stem. Um, just know that those are different options, um, and we can opt for conservative as possible. Okay. All right. Large bowel obstruction. Everything is just about the same as small. The etiology here, though, the number one cause is colon cancer. How I separate the two. Remember, small is surgical, S and S. Large is big. Cancer is big and bad. So I think large, big, bad cancer. Okay? That's all you need to know about large bowel obstruction, I think. Okay? Great. Um, this wasn't specifically listed on the topic list, but obstruction was, and this is a type of obstruction that I think would be worth mentioning. This is called a volvulus, and this is when the bowel twists on itself. This most commonly occurs at the sigmoid colon, and this made a lot of sense to me because the sigmoid colon is already kind of an S shape, and it's twisted, so really easy for in my head that it could make itself into a loop. Whether or not that's actually the reason don't know, but it made sense to me, made sense for boards. Um, again, they'll have the same obstructive symptoms. It's just a volvulus refers to how it twists on itself. Treatment for this is an endoscopic decompression. All right, we're just moving right along. Next up is intussusception. It's a bowel within a bowel. And this is where the intestine telescopes into itself, creating an obstruction. This happens in kiddos, ages 6 to 18 months old is the demographic. Symptoms again, uh, that, you know, pain, vomiting, you know, nothing, nothing too exciting, except for current jelly stools. Burn that into your brain that that goes with intussusception, current jelly stool. On physical exam, they may also have a sausage-shaped mass. So you have current jelly on your sausage. Sounds like something they'd have at Ikea, maybe, with their meatballs. But uh, if that makes sense to you, <laughs> those two go together. Sausage-shaped mass, most commonly in the right upper quadrant, current jelly stools. Diagnosis. This is also diagnosis and treatment because an air contrast barium enema, sometimes also called a double contrast enema or a barium enema with air contrast. Doesn't matter if you see the words barium and 
air together and enema, something along those lines. That is both diagnostic and therapeutic for intussusception. And I say diagnostic and therapeutic, and your questions will too. So know that, love that. There you go. That's intussusception. Bam. We're just flying through. Uh, next up, we're going to cover colon cancer. And I know this technically isn't like a disorder of obstruction, but since it's the number one cause of large bowel obstruction, I threw it in today's episode. Just kind of a little background on this. These are when colon polyps then turn cancerous. This is a type of adenocarcinoma. Um, most polyps take 10 to 20 years becoming before becoming cancerous. Risk factors, so you think, do think are important for you to know. Low fiber diet, high red meat diet, processed meat diet, inflammatory bowel disease, which refers to ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, which we're going to talk about next week. Um, ulcerative colitis is a bigger risk factor than Crohn's disease, um, just for reference. And patient age, these guys are generally over the age of 50. There's also two genetic components. One of them we're going to mention probably a little bit more with our GYN chapter. And then uh, there's also one called familial adenomatous polyposis, FAP. And uh, this one is when the hundreds of polyps begin to develop in their 20s. Cancer for these particular patients is inevitable by their 50s. Um, and their screening and everything is a little bit different. So we'll talk about that in just a second. But no, there is a genetic component, both in a very specific hereditary form and then as well as colon cancer in general. Okay. Diagnosis. Colonoscopy with biopsy. This is cancer. We like to biopsy cancer. It's always going to be our test of choice with cancer is biopsy. Um, you may also see a barium enema. And what the classic finding for colon cancer is what's called an apple core lesion. And just kind of imagine that there's a mass on either side of that tube. And it's going to create that shape like you've eaten an apple all the way down. And it looks like an apple core. Um, one lab value you might get is called carcinogenic embryonic antigen. Again, that's carcinogenic embryonic antigen. That is CEA. These are usually elevated in these patients. This is also measured to see how they are responding to treatment. Um, just kind of keep that. It's not specific to colon cancer, but it is one of the things we often measure with colon cancer. Okay. Um, these patients may also have an iron deficiency anemia. Okay. Screening. So screening for colon cancer is pretty close among the different agencies, um, enough to um, make it applicable for this podcast. An average risk person, say myself, I have no family history of colon cancer, so I can get a fecal occult blood annually starting at age 50, and then a colonoscopy also starting at age 50, and I get that every 10 years. And then we do that until 75 or until a life expectancy is less than 10 years. Make sense? Um, you also have the option for adverse risk patients to do a flex sigmoidoscopy every five years instead, also starting at 50. But I would just focus on colonoscopy. Less numbers to memorize. 
For your patients at increased risk, which we're defining as having a single first-degree relative with cancer under the age of 60, or multiple first-degree relatives of any age, you're going to get a colonoscopy every five years starting at age 40 or 10 years prior to the youngest affected relative. So let's say that I have my dad has colon cancer at age 45. According to this rule, I would get colon cancer screening starting at age 35. Now, if he had colon cancer at age 55, then I would start screening at 40. Does that make sense? Because we're going to go whichever is youngest. So 40 is younger in terms of him being 55. But then 45, I want to get there, catch it earlier if possible. For those with the familial adenomatous polyposis, these guys are getting polyps way in their 20s. So what we're going to do for them is we're going to get them a sigmoidoscopy annually, beginning at age 10 to 12. They end up getting a colectomy as prophylaxis because cancer is pretty much inevitable by them by their 50s. Um, so we're just monitoring to them to see when that decision is going to be made. But so they're getting a sigmoidoscopy annually from when they're an adolescent. Patients with inflammatory bowel disease are getting a colonoscopy every one to two years, eight to 15 years after diagnosis, which is a very annoying broad range. I think it's more important for you to remember that they're getting one every one to two years. Starting at that, I would just round to 10 um, years after diagnosis. Okay. All right. Um, what's also on this list that I'm kind of putting with obstruction, even though it's not quite an obstruction, is constipation. Now, the blueprint is filled with symptoms. Arguably, constipation is a disorder. There is an ICD-10 code for it. But to me, it's also a symptom. Um, so I'm just going to kind of talk about it briefly. Constipation is associated with a lot of things. It can be associated with hypothyroid states, your diabetic patients. It can be a side effect of drugs, especially opioid medications. With kids, it might be an issue of diet, or we might need to talk about behavioral modifications, which is a whole other topic in general. And then another thing that might be possible is Hirschsprung's disease, which we're going to talk about in just a second. So I'm going to leave the topic of constipation just as it is, because any particular question that they have is probably just going to be a combination of what you know as a about to pass your board's clinician. So hate to leave you hanging there, but I think you guys can handle a question about constipation just from gathering information from everything else that you already know. So, uh, but we are going to talk about Hirschsprung disease. And this is a disease that is um, an absence of ganglion cells, which causes a functional obstruction. So basically what happens is that they don't have the ganglion cells, so they, the, their gut isn't moving. It's just 
exists there. It affects the distal colon and the rectum most commonly. Symptoms. This starts at birth. They have no ganglion cells. It's not that they die. They just were never there. It's a developmental issue. So symptoms, they might have a meconium ileus. So this is failure to pass meconium within 48 hours. Again, it's a obstruction. So they might have vomiting, distension, chronic constipation. Diagnosis. This is a disease of muscle contraction. So we can use manometry. Remember when we used manometry way back in achalasia in the esophagus. So this is anorectal manometry, so a little bit different. This is used for initial screening, and they'll find lack of relaxation, relaxation of the internal sphincter. Um, but again here, a biopsy is the definitive diagnosis because we will see that there are no ganglion cells there. So again, diagnosis, biopsy is definitive, showing a lack of ganglion cells, but we can also use manometry as well. Treatment for these little kiddos, surgical resection of the affected bowel. Okay. All right. That's everything. Um, like I said, I wanted to separate it out just to make it a little bit uh, less overwhelming. So let's just go ahead and uh, end with some questions. What physical exam finding is associated with intussusception. And this is a sausage-shaped mass. Bonus points if you said right upper quadrant. Describe the pathophysiology of Hirschsprung disease. And this is absence of ganglion cells. What is the number one cause of large bowel obstruction? This is colon cancer. All right, five takeaway points from today. Number one, current jelly stools equals intussusception. Number two, number one cause of small bowel obstruction equals surgical adhesions. Number one cause of large bowel obstruction equals big bad cancer. Number three, Air contrast barium enema is diagnostic and therapeutic for intussusception. Number four, high-pitched hyperactive bowel sounds equals early small bowel obstruction. And number five, colon cancer screening for the average risk individual is a colonoscopy every 10 years beginning at age 50. All right, everybody. I hope that all makes sense today. If it doesn't, you know you guys can always email me. My email is pastudysesh at gmail.com. I always appreciate your thoughts, comments, feedbacks, questions, concerns. It would do me a great favor if you could leave us a review on iTunes. It would help this podcast grow immensely. Uh, also, share us with your friends. Share our page on Facebook. We are at PA Study Sesh on Facebook. You can head on over to my website, pastudysesh.blueberry.net. That's blueberry with no E's for complete copies of the show notes as well as the blueprint and for a promo code for 20% off your subscription to Picmonic. 
Picmonic is amazing for the GI section. So um, definitely recommend you guys check that out. I'd like to thank Lee Rosevere for the use of his songs, Tech Toys, and Curiosity for the intro, outro, and question portions of our podcast. And again, like I said, if you guys have any questions, please email me, pastudiesession@gmail.com. Next week, we're going to finish up the bowel section with all the, you know, inflammatory, irritable bowel syndrome, appendicitis, all those fun things. We're going to finish that up and then we'll just keep going through all the accessory organs of the GI section. So um, I hope you guys have a wonderful week and are enjoying the amazing fall weather. And um, I hope you guys have a wonderful week.